0: scripture today is from John 1, 19 through 34. Now this was John's testimony when the Jewish leader in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Messiah. They asked him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. Finally, they said, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet. I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. Now the Pharisees who had not been sent questioned him. Why then do you baptize if you are not the Messiah, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? I baptize with water, John replied. But among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me. The straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, The man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. Let's pray. God, it is really joyful to be in your house this morning. Thank you for bringing us here in this time of immense celebration um, at the end of our waiting. And we just want to pray that you would open our hearts to the word that Alan has to bring this morning. Um, Help us really um, to push all the distractions of this busy, busy time out of our minds and to just be right here with your word right now. We love you and we trust you and we praise you in Jesus name. Amen.
1: All right, so uh, <clears throat> Christmas is finally upon us. By the way, I got a rough voice this morning, but <clears throat> that's okay. As long as you can handle a little bit more bass <clears throat> in my voice, will be just fine today. Um, yeah, I, I don't know where it happened, but Christmas showed up on us. And this morning we are concluding our um, Advent series that's been looking at the first chapter of John's epistle. And, and what we've seen over these past few weeks is we've been working through this chapter in preparation Is First of all, we saw how Jesus comes as the light of the world, which means that to the degree that we see and understand the depth of our own darkness that's in us and around us, uh, the message of Christmas will bring hope that his light can dawn into the darkness of our world. And then we moved on to see how the birth of this baby in a manger is what opens up to us the offer of being born again ourselves that what Christmas means to us is not just uh, the hope of a better year or of maybe a cheerful season, but we're really offered a whole new me, which is what I most desperately need. A new me that has the power and the ability to live out of the freedoms that Jesus' life and death has brought to us. And then last week we saw how God's desire, his heart, has always been to be with us, to be intimately in our very midst, Uh, first displayed in the tabernacle where he pitched his tent right in the middle of his people, but he was still separate from us because he was over there and separated by a curtain. And then, as John says, is manifest in a more full way in the coming of Jesus. God is now in human flesh, come to be with us face to face, but who is still human enough to only be in one place at a time, and that place is now in heaven. And so his presence was still a bit limited. But now he's experienced, uh, his presence comes by the sending of his spirit, living right within us. And then, of course, one day, we're going to be able to enjoy the fullness of his presence forever and perfectly. And you see, all of this collectively is what John has been saying is part of what it means for us to celebrate Christmas. It's more than the coming of God into the world, but... It's the very means that God um, is using to remake us into the image of Jesus so that we can be with him in intimate community, fully healed, fully restored, fully satisfied forever. So this morning, what I want us to look at from this passage is how all of this collectively led to John being prepared for his coming in a way that few others were. Uh, See, almost nobody was looking for this kind of redemption, even though they were all actively looking for the Messiah. In fact, you notice, even here in our passage, they came asking if John might be that Messiah because they were always talking about the coming Messiah. They were always looking forward to this coming Messiah. And yet here he is, standing in their midst, and almost nobody noticed, and yet John did. And so this morning, what I want us to ask is simply this. Why did John notice? Why was he prepared? And how can we learn from that to be prepared ourselves? And so the first thing I want you to notice here about John is that he knew who he wasn't, right? And then, of course, the natural question that flows from it for each one of us is, do you know who you are not? And you see, that's one of the primary reasons why John was able to recognize Jesus when he came. And others didn't, because they they didn't know who they were not. And, and here's what I mean by that: we we often talk around here about the fact that there are two halves to the gospel message. The gospel, on the one hand, means that you are far more sinful than you ever imagined, and the second is that you are far more loved than you ever dare dream or hope. And you see, this first point is highlighting that first aspect, the humility part, that you're not God. And therefore, you're in desperate need of a rescue. Now, who is this John character here, and how does he show us this? Well, first of all, let me just point out that this is that the John the Baptist that we're talking about here is not the same John who's writing the letter of the epistle uh, of, of the book of John. We're looking here at the cousin of Jesus, John the Baptist, who was called to be uh, the forerunner of the Messiah, the voice of uh, the one in the wilderness calling out, prepare the way of the Lord, as Isaiah told us. <clears throat> this is the one whom Mary came to see his mother, Elizabeth, and at the sound of her greeting, John leapt in her womb. But <clears throat> if you read the story of John, he grew up as kind of a, a weird sort of guy. Uh, he was, to put it mildly, a bit uh, quirky. Um, he, he was probably not the most popular guy at a party. Um, He lived in the wilderness. He looked a bit unorthodox and disheveled. He ate grasshoppers and honey. He used the barren wilderness as his pulpit instead of the temple courts, uh, like all of the other respectable teachers. And his message wasn't exactly a crowd pleaser. It was full of gloom and doom, you know, calling all the people, even the good people, to repentance. Just one example in Luke 3. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Now, I mean, I've been in church planting my whole career, and that's a really poor strategy for starting a new ministry. It's not how you want to go about it um, if you want some advice. But listen, because he was so quirky and because he was so unorthodox, many of the people began to wonder, could this maybe be the coming Messiah? And so even the religious leaders, the really important guys from the temple, they stopped by to check him out. Not, I think, because they thought he might actually be the Messiah, but I think likely to quiet the crowds with their wondering. And so, hey, listen, the most important religious leaders come out uh, into the wilderness to ask him, are you the Messiah? Verse 19, we see that they sent a delegation to find out. Now, I want you to just think about this for a moment. You're all alone as one of the very few people who recognize Jesus as a Messiah. And you're preaching a really unpopular message of repentance, of tomb and gloom, and yet, people are coming, and they're being baptized in huge numbers. So much so that the big wigs of the culture come to check you out themselves. And it's got to be incredibly tempting for John to use all of this to his advantage, to you know at least grow his ministry, if not his popularity. I mean, if I were John, and all the religious leaders who were the, also the cultural leaders were to come to hear me, and they were asked if I were the Messiah, I mean. If of course I'd say no I'm not the Messiah but there's at least a part of me that would like to add well not, not quite but I, I can see why you might make that mistake right I mean I'm, I'm close I, you know I, I'm his forerunner right I'm in Isaiah's prophecy see here that talk, that's talking about me listen it's, it's extremely easy for us to think and act like we are the Messiah to other people I mean the most important authorities of that culture came out into the wilderness to ask him straight to his face are you the Messiah and it would have been very tempting for him to claim more than he should have it was an opportunity for him to have a big power grab or at least a really big boost to his ego <clears throat> and like many uh, popular preachers after him you can almost feel the temptation for his pride to start to swell up and just imagine all the bigger crowds that are possible now I'm going to be really big And yet, what does John say? He comes out with three I am not statements here. Verse 20, he did not fail to confess, but confess freely, I am not the Messiah. Verse 24, are you Elijah then? No, I am not. Verse 27, he says, don't even think it for a second because I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. Listen, John is not afraid here to say who he is not. He's not afraid in the midst of all this popularity. He's not afraid to go even lower and to be humble, to walk away from the limelight and all the power that it brings. And I think if you and I are really honest here today, we would have to admit that it's often difficult for us to walk away from temptations like this because our our culture has both groomed us as well as our own hearts naturally want to go there, either to puff ourselves up with pride, whenever we get the chance, or at least to stop others from saying so. I mean, if you feel it's necessary, go ahead. I, I wouldn't say it. Some might, you know. And, and, or maybe just to feign the false humility of, well, no, I'm not the Messiah, but I, I can see why you might easily make that mistake. But, it, but it's just natural, I think, for us to subtly start to believe deep in our hearts that we are the Messiah to other people, right? I mean, we do this sort of thing all the time. In fact, let me just give you a few common examples of how we do this. If you feel like you need to step in and fix everybody's problems or they won't get fixed, or they won't get fixed right, at least, that's a Messiah complex. If you tend to think that your voice is the sole voice of wisdom and sanity in the room during a discussion and people need you to speak up, or they'll likely go either to dangerous extremes, or they'll get it wrong somehow, that's a Messiah complex. If you're quick to offer advice to people without knowing the context or the full hurt of another person, that's a Messiah complex. If you find that it's easier just to do it yourself, because they'll probably just get it wrong anyway, and certainly not do it as well as I would get it done, that's... A messiah complex. Or maybe for you, you take things on when you know full well that you don't have the time or the energy to do it well. That's a messiah complex. Or maybe you tend to convey to people that you really are a very stable person and you've got it all together when deep inside you're really just a mess. That's a messiah complex. Or maybe you're reluctant to ask for help from other people because Either you don't want to be a burden to them or because you don't want to appear weak or needy. That's a Messiah complex. Now, have I offended enough of you yet, right? (laughs) And listen, that's just my own personal list. Yours might look something different because we all tend to function as if we are a Messiah to somebody, somewhere. And, And when we do, it keeps us from seeking out the true Messiah for our own rescue. Because we fail to see the depth of our own need. Because we've got it together. We know things that other people don't. Listen, John is able to confess freely what he is not. Because he has true humility. He's not competent on his own. He's not able to be the savior of anybody else. He's not the smartest guy in the room. And see, real humility isn't thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. And and the heart of what sin is, is primarily thinking only about yourself. Because everything's about me, right? It's about my comfort and my success and my happiness. But true humility comes when you start to see that it's not all about me after all. Because notice here, John's confession really has nothing to do with him at all. But it has everything to do with Jesus. Because he saw how, how great Jesus was. And I think when we forget who Jesus is and what he came to do for us and living and dying for us, it becomes easy to start focusing all of the attention in life on me, right? This, this life's about me, my joy, my happiness, my little world. <clears throat> and when the Spirit comes along and brings a deep remembrance of Jesus and the beautiful work that he did in living and dying for me, it, it, our focus begins to move from all of this self-care to an overwhelming wonder that a God like this could love somebody as messed up as me. And when that happens, our attention now becomes enamored with Jesus. And that's what creates true humility. Listen, John's humility is not a low view of himself, but it comes from a high view of the Messiah. See, he says, look, guys, I'm just baptizing here with water, but the Messiah is going to baptize with the Holy Spirit, and I can't do that. And that's why I'm not worthy to untie his sandals. He's not just a better man. He's not just a better prophet, but he's God himself. And that puts him way beyond me. And as a result, when the true Messiah steps onto the scene, John is quick and ready to acknowledge him because he's not trying to be the Messiah to anybody else. And so that's really the first question I want each of us to grapple with this morning. Do you know who you are not? Or are you so busy trying to be somebody else's Messiah that you're really not ready and hungry and overwhelmed when the real Messiah shows up? You know, maybe you say, well, yeah, Jesus, he's nice. I mean, he's great, but people need me. No, no, they don't. They need Jesus, just like you do. Now, the second thing we see here about John was not only that he knew who who he was not, but he also knew who he was. And this flows from the second half of the gospel, that you're far more loved than you ever dared hope or dream. Because despite his great humility here, John also displays a tremendous confidence in who he actually is, because after these three I am not statements that he gives here, in verse 23 he gives us a confident I am statement. He says, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. Listen, his great humility does not cause him to say, Well, I'm just a nobody. Pay no attention to me. See, he wasn't just an Eeyore, but he confidently says, I am the one that the prophet Isaiah spoke about. I am a voice that's part of God's history of redemption. See, he knew that he had been set apart by God, which made him bold and confident in his ministry. And you see, this was the heart of the conundrum that people actually had with John. How can someone so humble be so bold and confident at the same time? How can both be true in the same person at the same time? And listen, John knows with great clarity who he is because of what, is, what God has called him to do. And his confidence doesn't come from himself, but it comes from God's call upon his life. See, John knows it's not his talents or his skills that make him great, but it's God's call. And as a result, when the crowds grew and the high officials show up, his message doesn't start to soften or become politically correct. He didn't start playing to the crowds, but he was the same guy giving the same message of repentance to everybody who would listen. And listen, let's, let's be honest here. Most of us tend to think that we are That the more that we can accomplish, the greater person I must be. Or conversely, when we fail, the more we think, what a loser I must be. And, And you see, it's just the way of the world to assume that our successes make us wiser and better than we really are. And that our failures make us weaker and worse than we really are. And because this is the way the world operates, it makes a genuine Christian somebody the world just can't understand any more than people could understand who John was here. I mean, how can we be people who are utterly confident that we now belong to God, that we are loved by God, that we will spend eternity with God, that nothing I can say or do will ever separate me from his love again? How can I say that without somebody thinking, well, that's because he thinks he's better than other people? Because, you see, from the world's point of view, that's the only way they can make any sense out of it but they fail to see that it's our utter humility of having nothing that causes us to reach out for grace where we are given everything, right? I mean, how can we say with absolute confidence that things like homosexuality and abortion are wrong without assuming that we're better people, we're superior people, and therefore thinking that people who do things like that need to be oppressed and robbed of their dignity. We should take away their rights. No, nothing could be further from the truth. But it's the only way the world can make any sense out of us. And so they have to accuse us of hatred and bigotry because they can't fathom how we could both love people and disagree with them at the same time. The world can't, but the Christian can. Because we know that every ounce of our worth and value as a person is because of the grace of Jesus given to us. It's not about me at all. See, this is how we can call people sinners who need to repent without thinking that we're somehow sinless ourselves. See, from the world's point of view, to say that, it it makes us bigoted and judgmental. But that misses the very essence of what Christianity is all about, that we're simply calling fellow sinners to repent fellow lost and wandering souls who need rescue just like we have because you see the heart of Christianity is that we can be bold about who we are because we're humble about who we're not that we can be confident because of what Jesus has done but no confidence at all in ourselves because everything that we have comes from Jesus it it comes from grace it's all a gift See, we are confident that we are beloved children of the King, not because we're any better than anybody else, but because of what Jesus has done for us, and therefore who God now declares us to be. And see, John is showing us here how to have utter humility, not trying to be somebody I'm not, and yet to be filled with utter confidence, assured of who I am because of Jesus. So the second question for you today and for me is do you, do you know who God has called you to actually be? Do you understand that you have been called by God out of your selfish world of sin and into an adoption that makes you his precious child? And do you see how that calling gives you confidence, not in yourself, but in the promises of your Redeemer, that you belong, that, that you matter, that you are loved, that you are somebody despite what a screw-up you are in and of yourself. And listen, to the degree that you can come to understand this, it will begin, I think, to reveal to us what the true gift of Christmas really is. I mean, first of all, that God brought this Messiah to bring light into our darkened world, but then secondly, that God has been doing this and he will continue to do this in the most unexpected of ways. See, this is the upside-down, backwards way that the kingdom of God works. Where it's only those who admit their abject poverty of spirit can be given the powerful presence of the Holy Spirit. Where only those who die to self can come alive to the things of God. Where the only thing that you can bring to God and offer Him is your nothingness, your, your emptiness, your absolute need in order for Him to fill you with His presence. And again, this is the core message of the gospel, that you are far more sinful than you ever imagined. You don't just need good advice about how to change your life. You need the good news of what Jesus has done, that Jesus has accomplished what you never could. You don't just need a a helper or some inspiration to live better. You need a rescuer who lives and dies in your place. And then secondly, you're not only more screwed up than you ever imagined, but at the same time, you are far more loved and accepted than you ever dared hope or dream. See, it's the humility of spirit that says, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling, right? Naked, come to you for dress, because it's not about me, it's about Jesus. And it's the confidence of knowing that your debt has been paid in full that allows you to be bold and confident that I belong, that I matter, that I'm somebody, that I have nothing left to defend or prove because the King of Kings loves me and has adopted me as his child. Listen, let me just get practical. Stop looking at your life through the lens of your own failures and your own weaknesses as proof that you're a nobody, that you're a loser, that there's maybe something wrong with you because you can't seem to get your act together like everybody else does. Stop looking at your life through the lens of your successes and accomplishments as proof that you're somebody, that you've made it, that you're better than anybody else. Because it's not about you, it's about Jesus and what he did for you. Stop looking at a good Christian as somebody who has all the right answers or, or who has the corner on the truth. You know, the attitude that we as Christians are right about everything and everybody else is wrong, that's not Christianity at all. I mean, God is certainly right, but our understanding is incredibly flawed because you see a Christian is somebody who sees that everything that you have comes by grace as a gift, and it comes only as you die to yourself, as you die to any hope that there's anything that you could actually bring to the table that would make God love you anymore. If you want to see the real gift that comes to you at Christmas, you actually have to be willing to go low enough to see that God is not a champion of the strong, but he's a rescuer of the weak. The real gift comes when you see that everything that you've ever longed to be, everything that you've ever longed to do, finds its satisfaction in receiving the gift of life from Jesus. Everything else points to it. Everything else tempts you Maybe it's here, maybe it's there. It's never there because it's here. You know, a lot of people want an inspirational Jesus for Christmas. Maybe one who talks about peace on earth, right? Or who ends all prejudice and races. Maybe one who inspires uh, better people to live better lives. But are you willing to go low enough to receive a Savior who does everything that you're absolutely unable to do yourself? Are you willing to go low enough to look for a Savior who was born in a nowhere little hovel of a town in a barn out back to an unwed mother in the form of a helpless little baby? Or are you looking for a bigger, more powerful Jesus than that? It's no wonder that people constantly miss Christianity and reject it because more often than not, what they hear from those who are supposed to be Christians is often a message of superiority and judgment because they fail to see the humility that marks the life of a genuine believer. So often what people hear from the church is the politics of winning the culture wars and setting up our agendas, but they fail to see the love of people more than the love of power. People often hear Christians pointing to their own moral superiority, their own superior social agendas, but don't often hear people rejoicing as John did here. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, who takes away my sin. Listen, it's easy for us to miss the true gift of Christmas, the, the joy of belonging and rescue that comes to somebody as messed up as me who deserves nothing but rejection and punishment, because we're just too focused on ourselves. It's easy to miss the incredible offer here of the confidence that comes from knowing that you are loved and you are adopted and you belong and nothing can ever take that away because we lack often the deep humility that comes from seeing that everything that I have comes just as a free gift and not from me at all. I think it's very easy for us to be like the religious leaders here who knew their Bibles backwards and forwards. They were <clears throat> waiting for the coming Messiah. I mean, they even knew the town that he would be born in, and yet they were so proud of their knowledge and their accomplishments that they were not willing to go low enough to see their own need, and the amazing and unexpected way that God met that need. It's, I think, easy for us to be like them, and be utterly blind to what God is doing in you and in your neighbor and in your world because it doesn't fit with our agenda. Listen, the very same things that kept these people from seeing Jesus at his birth, which was their pride, will be the very same things that keep us from receiving this gift of Jesus and his life lived for us and his death died in our place. Jesus does not inspire you to live a better life, but he comes and lives for you in your place a life you could never live. Listen, grace only flows downhill to broken sinners. It's only for those who have nothing. And only the humble will seek it. And only the confident will trust it. John was prepared. He was expecting it. Because he knew who he wasn't. And he understood who he was. Do you. Are you prepared? Lord Jesus, we confess that we so often miss the joy, the power, the transformation of Christmas because so much of it is about us, about our families, about our agendas, about our meetings and our schedules and the busyness and making sure we've got everything in order and we just fail to stop and be overwhelmed that you would break into our world to love on somebody as screwed up as I am. Lord, I pray that you'd help for us to never get over that, that we would see the depth of our need as being so great that you had to come and live and die for us, but yet your love was so great that you gladly did it. Lord, I pray that this would fill us with both a tremendous humility and a tremendous confidence, and that like John, we would be ready and prepared for the coming of the real Messiah.